told first service that uh, I can tell that Teresa Breeding does the scheduling for the sermons because just like the old days in youth, once I started reading Galatians chapter 2, I realized not only did I have to preach on hypocrisy, hypocrisy, that's better, and racism, and the big one, circumcision. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, she saw me coming. A little background knowledge. I used to have to, it seems like every time that we talked about a, a difficult subject in youth group, I had to do it. I don't know why. But she's still doing it. Anyway, but I'll get over it. And we're going to struggle through this as the best we can. But uh, in opening today, as I was preparing for the sermon the last couple of weeks, I saw something in, in a magazine article which was not in the magazine, it was actually on the interwebs, but it's from a magazine article. But it was from one of my favorite movies, and that is The Gladiator. The Gladiator. And this fits so well with what we're talking about today. It goes along with our new series, Nobody But Jesus, and the book of Galatians being a book about freedom, being free in Christ. So I want to read it to you before we begin. So General Maximus comes to Rome dirty and shackled. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Where's Rome's legendary pageantry to greet one of her heroes? The burnished armor, the laurel crown, where's the honor due him? Maximus comes a slave. That's the premise of the movie Gladiator. Through a maze of events, Maximus goes from a celebrated warrior, favorite among the emperor, to a despised traitor, nemesis of another. He becomes a fugitive, then a caged slave, the unvanquished gladiator. His growing fame in the arena brings him to the sports pinnacle. Rome's magnificent Colosseum to face her elite warriors. The games open with a reenactment of the Battle of Carthage. The gladiators, all foot soldiers, are cast the hapless Carthaginians. It's a stage for slaughter. They are marched out a dark passageway into a brilliant sunlight and met with a war of bloodlust. Maximus, their leader, shouts to his men, Stay together! He assembles them in a tight circle in the center of the arena, back to back, shields aloft, spears outward. Again he shouts, Whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. What comes out of that gate is swift and sleek and full of terror. Chariot upon chariot thunder forth, war horses pull with deadly agility and earth-shaking strength, wagons driven by master charioteers. Amazonian warrior princes ride behind and with deadly precision hurl spears and volley arrows. One gladiator strays from the circle, ignoring Maximus' shouts once more. Stay together. The instinct to scatter is strong. But Maximus exerts his authority and they resist that impulse. The chariots circle closer and closer, closer. Spears and arrows rain down on the men's wood shields. The chariots are about to clinch the knot. Right when Maximus shouts, Now the gladiators attack and decimate the Romans. Commodus, the evil emperor, caustically remarks to the game's organizer, My memory of Roman history is rusty, but didn't we beat Carthage the first time? What it's telling us here, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. That's what what echoes what Jesus prayed for us. May he 
may they be brought to complete unity. And he promises that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. We know that. We long for it. We pray for it. Not only that, but what's worse is we often turn our weapons inward instead of outward. In Galatians it says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, Paul warns us, watch out, you will be destroyed by each other. The sad truth in the church today is many scatter at conflict in these moments and they turn their weapons, we turn our weapons inward toward each other. We scatter with unforgiving hearts and determination to destroy all those things that they agree with. They seek to inflict damage, not institute healing or being willing to work out the problems like Peter and Paul did that we we're going to talk about today. Instead, they cause destruction, divisions, and devastation. And this is never of God. Instead, they seek to split, to destroy others' character, and justify their reasons for not forgiving. They actually believe that God wants them to divide, to discredit and hurt the body of Christ. That's what today's message is all about, is being together in unity, being united together and being one body with our weapons pointed outward, not inward at ourselves. See, God's grace gives us freedom from this conflict that we're going to be talking about today. Again, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. But see, this conflict, we often experience this in our own culture, in our own country. When people come from different backgrounds, religious upbringings, different countries, different countries being cultures and, and backgrounds being put together in close proximity with each other, it can cause conflict. It can cause disagreements. It can cause uncomfortable moments. See, churches, they, they split up and break up all, all the time over the simplest of issues. I know I grew up with my grandfather, and he used to listen to Jerry Clower, the comedian Jerry Clower. I don't know, most of you probably don't even know who that is. But look him up, it's worth it. But I remember this one story that he told about this little country church. And uh, they had a business meeting. And you know what business meetings are like. They just get around and they argue, right? There's a bunch of conflict. What to get here, what to spend there. But anyway, they were, they were taking a vote and they were wanting to buy a chandelier. Well, this old deacon, he's sitting there and he's just steaming. He's mad. He, he doesn't understand. So he, he voices his opinion, right? They're trying to vote on this new chandelier. And he, he brings up his argument. He's like, we cannot afford a chandelier. Even if we could afford a chandelier, we can't afford any, to pay anyone to play one. And we need lights in the church. <laughs> right? So that is the principal problem that we're going to be talking about today in Galatians 2. Not just the chandelier part, but we've got plenty of lights. But we have conflict when people of different backgrounds and different identities come together. There's, there's a collision of conflict. Paul is going to deal with that conflict in Galatians 2. He's going to dive deeper into the gospel. It's like a well. See, the well, I've heard it said that the well is, uh, the gospel is not the diving board. It's the pool that you're diving into. That's the gospel. So the well, if, you, if your well runs dry, you don't just dig your well out wider, right? That's just going to make a pond and a cesspool. That's not going to help. To get down to that life-giving, clean water, you have to dig deeper. 
You have to go down deeper. And that's what Paul's going to do with the gospel here in Galatians 2. He's going to take us deeper into the gospel so that we can understand it better. When we have these conflicts, when we have these disagreements that are going to come, he's going to give us the gospel. So we're going to start in verse 11 and 12. Again, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But after, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Now, so what's going on here? In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this dream. God reveals himself to him in a dream and speaks to him. And he kind of unrolls this big curtain or carpet or, or blanket of all these different animals. And he commands Peter, kill and eat. So what God's trying to show him here is that unlike Jewish tradition, where they could only eat clean foods and they could not eat unclean foods, he was telling him what my son did on the cross took away all those unclean things. Jesus Christ made all things clean. He tells Peter, kill and eat. Guys, it's not, not just an awesome thing, right? That we can eat bacon, right? So all these different, all these different animals were laid out, like pigs and shrimp and rabbits, all these unclean things, and he commanded him, kill and eat. So this is like Peter's pigs in a blanket dream, right? But to a Jew, it was more like a nightmare because they were taught this entire time that all these animals were unclean. They could not eat them. They were forbidden to even be in their presence. So at first, Peter, he resists the temptation to eat these unclean foods. He resists what God's telling him to do. But he finally realizes that what Christ did on that cross made everything clean for the believer. See, what Paul is trying to tell us in this chapter is ritual cleanliness had nothing to do, had no longer had anything to do with being close to God. So, Peter began to eat with the Gentiles, began to be buddies with them, eating with them. So, here's the thing, once you eat bacon, right, there's no turning back. So, Peter, he's not turning back, right? So, Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles, eating how on the hog, literally, Right? Having a good old time with the Gentiles. Buddy buddies with them. And then some Judaizers, the Christian Jewish leaders with James, come to town. What does Peter do? Peter pulls a high school stunt and goes from this lunch table over here. I'm not eating with those Gentiles. I'm being a good Jewish Christian over here. Right? So this is where Paul steps in. And and he's saying, you know, you're being a hypocrite, right? Verse 13. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas, who everybody liked, was led astray by their hypocrisy. You know, Dennis says all the time that the main reason that people don't come to church is they say that they don't have anything to do. That wasn't supposed to happen yet. <laughs> They're always liking to throw curveballs at me. I don't know why. 
But anyway, this always says the first thing, the first excuse that people make is they don't have anything to wear, right? That's why they don't come to church. I think the second reason, and I've heard people say this, people very, very close to me say this, the reason I don't come to church is that's where all the hypocrites are. And he's right. And it's okay. Because we're all sinners. And Paul is telling people here, you cannot, this is not the gospel. So what's happening here is Jewish Christians began insisting that the Gentile believers adopt their culture if they were to become true Christians. If you're going to be a true Christian, Gentile, you have to be circumcised. If you don't know what that is, see Jeff. Yeah. Good luck with that later. But Paul is telling them that all those Jewish traditions, those old laws, those old things, have nothing to do with the gospel. These were added conditions that they were giving them. And see, Peter withdrawed from the Gentiles in order not to look bad. I don't want to look bad. But see, it's kind of like Michael Keane. He had an old t-shirt a long time ago. You're going to remember this, but... He wore it in youth group, and it stuck with me ever since. But it said on it, forgive me for my hypocrisy if you have to read this shirt to know that I am a Christian. But it's true. It stuck with me from that day forward. And that's the truth. If we're not living a life that people can see Christ through us, and that's all they see, forgive me. Right? That, that, that shirt that he was wearing is the truest shirt that anyone could ever wear. Forgive me for my hypocrisy if you have to read this shirt to know that I'm a Christian. See what Peter knew? What Peter knew deep down in his heart, it didn't stop him from acting on what he felt. That racism still ran a little bit deep. It was still there. It had not completely gone away. See, the thing is, we can all relate to Peter. It's one of the things I love about the Bible is that the heroes in the Bible, the Bible doesn't flatter them, right? I don't, I've never heard a, a little boy growing up or anyone saying, man, I, I want to be just like King David, right? He's a hero in the Bible, but he made a lot of mistakes. But the people in the Bible are heroes in the Bible. We can learn a lot from them. They were not perfect. They're relatable. Peter's no different. We have instances just like Peter where we want to put conditions on things. We want to put conditions on people to not be looked down upon. And Paul's saying, that's not the gospel, Peter. That's not the gospel. Verse 14. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Why are you trying to make them follow the Jewish traditions? Now see, this had to be something to watch, right? This was like a pay-per-view moment. This had to be, without a doubt, the most dramatic, tense confrontation so far in the New Testament, right? You had these two leading apostles, coming together in a disagreement. Two leading apostles about the leaders of Jesus Christ and the Christian movement coming face-to-face in open conflict. Now, I'm sure it's a little bit awkward, but sometimes this needs to happen in the church. 
Even though it was awkward. See, this needs to happen in the church today. Sometimes we need to be a little bit awkward with people. That awkward conversation needs to happen. What Paul's telling us here is that gospel unity is not the same as southern politeness. Where everyone just smiles and goes along with their business and tries to avoid controversy and say, okay, I'm just not going to touch that subject. Or try to avoid an unpleasant conversation. Listen, sometimes we have to love each other enough and the gospel enough to get a little awkward with them. We have to get a little awkward. And when I was, just last weekend, last Sunday, when we were doing the church, the, uh, the road cleanup, I had a perfect opportunity to have an awkward conversation with one of my former students. We were, I was picking up trash, and uh, I dropped my group off, and, and I drew, drove up a little bit of ways, and so I was kind of by myself. And I heard, hey, Mr. Ferris, and out jumps one of my students, one of my football players, without hesitating, jumps out and helps me start picking up trash. And I talked to him about church, but it did not get to the gospel. I missed my window of that awkward conversation, and I, I'm still regretting that. And so I'm now I'm looking for that moment to where I can have that awkward conversation again. But sometimes we have to love each other enough and find that time and love the gospel enough to have that awkward conversation with them. Paul's telling Peter, look, blockhead, right? That's what's going down. If you, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? That's just not going to work, right? In other words, how can we show others the gospel when we're not living the gospel ourselves? I don't know about you, but my toes got stepped on. Galatians 2, 16 through 19. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that he might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. The old law. See, Paul starts out here by explaining the gospel. Peter. And this might seem a little bit of condescending. Like I said, this was an awkward moment, right? This was an awkward moment. But Paul is saying, Peter, at its core, this problem, this issue, it's a gospel issue. It's not about who you're eating with, it's a gospel issue. And if we've learned anything over these last two series, is that when we accept Christ, we're justified. Justified never sinned. See, justification is being declared guiltless. See, when we receive Christ's righteousness by faith, we are justified. We are declared guiltless. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done on the cross. We are perfect in God's sight. We are completely accepted, beloved sons and daughters of God. The old law did not apply to Him. We can never keep all those commandments. 
Then Paul concludes, verse 20 and 21. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if the keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. There was no need for Christ to die. See, Galatians it is all about the freedom that the gospel alone provides for us. Not about our works, not about keeping all the laws, but about His grace. His grace. That's the only way that we're justified. It's all about the freedom that the gospel provides for us. In this chapter, Paul illustrates three kinds of freedom that we should experience through the gospel. So the the title of today's message is, If You're Free, Prove It. If you're free, prove it. But the first thing that we get from the gospel is the freedom of unity. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this one today. The freedom of unity, being united as one. See, Paul's telling us here that a lot of our inner personal strife, our hang-ups, goes back to a failure to understand and to truly apply the gospel. Paul's showing us here there's a lot of barriers, a lot of walls between people, and they exist because we try to find ways to justify ourselves when we never can. We try to justify ourselves. Oh, look what good things I've done so I can feel righteous and to look good. See, Jews did this to the law, right? We've heard it said that the Jewish people had over 600 laws that they had to follow. And then not only did they have those 600 and something laws, they all had hedge laws, which those hedge laws kept them from even getting close to breaking those laws. So that got up into the thousands of laws that they had to follow. So I'm sure it became really confusing to remember all those different laws, right? How far can we walk on the Sabbath? Uh, What can we eat llama meat? Is it clean? What about camel meat? Can we eat camel meat? What about turkey bacon? Can we eat turkey bacon? Can we wear shorts in church? I don't know. Is it, is it okay to wear pajamas or yoga pants out in public? Or is that just bad taste? I don't know. Right? So all these different laws, they were, they were, they were barriers. Right? And they were not accepted unless they were following these laws. And Paul's telling them that is not the gospel. These rules separated them from others. If you followed them, you were accepted by God. But if you didn't, you were rejected. This is not the gospel. See, but this is not just unique to Judaism, right? This is anything. All religions have such a list, right? It's a fundamental principle in every religious organization, every moral system that we have, except New Testament Christianity, when it's all about the gospel. It's about what Christ did, not about what we could do or could not do. See, it's popular Because it's flattering. Oh, look what I did. Look what you did. It's a soul condition. We're always trying to justify ourselves to set ourselves apart from others. I don't want to be around that group anymore because I'm good. Right? Nothing can be further from the truth. Paul's saying that is, don't you understand the gospel? Well, I was good today. At least I didn't do what Michael did. Or at least I didn't do what Shorty did. Right? 
I'm good. I'm clean. I'm justified. That's not the way it is. That's not the gospel. Because truth be known, I messed up more than they did this week. Right? See, I love the show Survivor. We watch it every, every week. We watch almost every season. But this is kind of what it looks like. Right? As people were always trying to convince everyone, whether we lie to them or try to, try to manipulate them, but we always try to keep from being that person that's getting voted off the island because no one wants to get voted off the island, right? And this past season, if you're keeping up with it, no one's got it voted off the island yet, and I don't understand it, right? But we don't want to be that person. See, because of this, we're always in constant competition with each other. And that's where pride comes in. The essence of pride is that it's competitive, to pride, it doesn't matter if you're good, only if I'm better than you. It doesn't matter if I'm good looking, only that I'm better good looking than you. It doesn't matter if I'm smart, only that I'm smarter than you. Right? We could go on and on with this, right? This fuels division. I have to protect and defend my distinctiveness of what things I think justify me or make me righteous with other people because they give me self-worth and a self-righteousness. And that's competitive because we're always trying to outdo one another. Right? All people, this is not just a religious thing. Everyone does this. Everyone does this. See, pride divides. Pride divides. And then while I was studying this sermon this week, I come across a 19th century pastor named Charles Spurgeon, you probably heard of him, but he said that he saw three main dividers in society. And it's kind of scary that it still applies today, but it does. But pride divides. We're going to be talking about the pride of race, the pride of face and place, and the pride of grace. And the first one we're going to be talking about today is the pride of race. And again, I was talking to Dennis, Pastor Dennis this morning, and I'm like, you know, I really struggled with this because, you know, we live in the South and, and racism is a thing. And how do I bring this about without offending someone? How do I bring this about with, without making people mad? How do I bring this about with and someone taking something from it and going out of here and applying it? And I really, really struggled with it. But these three things really helped me with that. But the pride of race... See, we're proud of who we are and where we come from. For many, their ethnic identity becomes a way for people to distinguish themselves from other people, right? We take pride in our Americanness, or our Southernness, or our whiteness, or our blackness, or, or my Asianness, whatever, right? We could go on and on. A racial distinctive makes them who they are and forms their identity. See, I. I love, and I'm proud to be a Tennessean. I can go on vacation, and I can just talk to someone, and they know exactly where I'm from. I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed of that. But it does not need to define who I am. It's just a part of who I am. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. See, our cultures are beautiful things. It's like a, a cut diamond with all the different sides that sparkle, created to by God to reflect His glory. There's a reason, I don't know it, but there's a reason that He made us all look different. There's a reason that we have different nationalities. There's a reason that we have different cultures. 
But when they become our primary distinguishing identity, it causes division. We become really proud of a certain flag. We become really protective of a culture and defensive of that culture. I think everyone sitting in this room today can feel a little, a little guilty about that. But it gives you a sense of identity. It's a part of what you think justifies you. But Paul's saying, did you not understand the gospel? He's telling us that there's only one race of people. Sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. There's only two classes of people. Dead or alive. Saved or unsaved. There's no in-between. We all have the same core problem, and that's sin. And that same core problem that everyone has, regardless of their race or identity or ethnic background, the only thing that can cleanse that sin is the blood of Jesus. It cleanses us all. Black, white, Asian, mixed, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. Now, we were at the great cathedral Chick-fil-A the other day, and... And we're, we're eating. It was kind of late at night. There was only a few families there. And uh, Carson, you know, they've got the little playground inside there. She's like, Daddy, can I go play? I'm like, sure, bud. And as soon as you eat. Well, he, you know, he finished his stuff. And then he was just sitting there looking. And I was like, I thought you were going to go play. It's getting late. He's like, but there's other kids in there. And they're different. Well, my racist self thought what? It's because that they're not white. Because they weren't. But my son, that I'm so proud of, did not mean it that way. He just meant that he didn't know him. But my mind went where? Racism. But my son just didn't want to play with people he didn't know. He was a little scared. But he got over that. And we do that all the time. It's not your race that gives you your worth or your identity. It's our identity in Christ. What he's done for us. By keeping the law, defending your culture. No human being is justified. None of us can be justified by defending our culture or our background or our works. Paul's trying to tell us that here. Paul says that after my identity in Christ, everything else is garbage. It's garbage. But I like the way he puts it in Philippians 3 when he says, my Jewishness was like scubula to him. Everyone say scubula. Now everyone go out and wash your mouth out with soap. Because Paul used a very strong word here for the things that were not of Christ in his life. Scubula. Poop. But not poop, right? So you get where I'm coming from. He, he was not kidding around here. He said a very strong word. See, even Paul was not perfect, right? He slipped up every once in a while. But see, what Paul sings, he loved his background. He was proud of his heritage. He was proud of his Jewish traditions. But he's just saying, compared to my identity in Christ, all that other stuff, all my background, all those rules I tried to follow, all that upbringing that I had, all that education that I had is garbage. It's scabula. It's poop. It's worthless. It's a pile of dung. It's a strong word. And that should be the same way in our lives. 
that if it's not about Christ, if it's not of Christ in our lives, it should be a pile of heaping dung, right? And it's okay to say that because Paul said it, and he was comfortable with that. When we become a Christian, our cultural differences and distinctions do not go away. They don't go away. They just become less important. When we experience racial division, almost always at the root of that problem is our ethnic identity has become too large. It gets in the way. My being American or my southernness, my being from Tennessee, if that is all that people see, it's getting in the way of the gospel. Instead of saying that I'm a white Christian, I should, in order to change it, and say I am a Christian that happens to be white. Or I am a Christian that is Southern. Or I'm a Christian that happens to be African American. That's the way it should be said, not the other way around, because those distinctives that we put on ourselves get in the way of the gospel. It get in the way of people seeing Christ in us and through us. If it becomes too large, it gets in the way of the gospel. You know, this reminds me of a story of my, of my grandmother. Not the grandmother that's here, but my other grandma. Neither one of them drive, by the way, anymore. But my other grandmother, my dad's mom, she never got her license, ever. So she's never driven any of it. But she got called into jury duty. And she was sitting there in the jury pool. And, you know, this is crossful, right? And it just so happened that the person being on, put on trial was African-American. And, of course, the lawyer asked the first question, Are you racist? Well, he gets to my grandmother. Are you racist? And I, I don't know her mindset here, but I love her, her response. Her response was, No, I'm not racist. I love Michael Jordan. <laughs> Needless to say, she did not have to serve on jury duty. Right? But we have to love others regardless if they're an athlete or not, regardless if they're African-American or not, regardless if they do not look like us or not having our ethnic background or our identities, right? We have to love everyone. See, our identity in Christ has to be much, much greater than any of the other identities that we possess. Then, when we come together and united, when we're in that circle with our weapons pointed outward and not inward, fighting each other, then we can t- kind of talk and tackle those tough, difficult subjects, and it won't divide us. A lot of those subjects that we avoid because we don't want to offend anyone. A lot of those subjects that we just avoid altogether because we're uncomfortable. But the pride of, the pride of race... Gets in the way every time. The second one, the pride of face and place. And we're getting a little bit more personal. When we think some personal accomplishment or characteristic sets us apart from others and justifies us, this we, send, we tend to put people in different categories, right? The rich or the poor, the wealthy or the unwealthy, the healthy or the unhealthy, the successful or unsuccessful, the beautiful or ugly, the fit or the unfit, right? We go on and on and on about these different comparisons and these different groups that we put people in, right? That we have pride in. And we look down on those who are in these different areas. We look down on them. But then we also get intimidated by the same group of people that are more so in those areas. 
right? You may feel like you're really fit and look at this guy over here and think, well, I'm more fit than he is. And then over here, you've got a bodybuilder. Well, you figure out real quick that you're not as good as him, right? And we're intimidated by that. We categorize people. We do that every day. But Paul's saying, do you not understand the gospel? Do you not realize how little your talents you can actually take credit for? That all your talents are gifts from God? See, your parents gave you your genes, and some of you are probably mad at your parents right now because you're not tall. Right? But God gave you the health and the opportunity to use those talents. Do you think if you were born in a village in Somalia that you would have the same privileges and the rights and the opportunities that you do now? Absolutely not. It's all from God. It's a gift from God. So pride about those things, pride about how successful you are, pride about that is just stupid. See, our talents can never justify us before God. There's only one kind of sinner, dead, hopeless. See, if we could use our merit or use our looks or use our good deeds our beauty, to justify ourselves, God would have let us. But we couldn't. So all that's totally worthless in any real sense of the word. So what we have in Jesus is worth infinitely more than all these things. In other words, who cares if I'm good looking now? Because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we can be ugly for 80 years, hopefully, because I can be comfortable in that because I'll be beautiful for eternity. That's our mindset should be. It doesn't matter if I'm intelligent now. I'm promised that I will inherit the mind of Christ. It doesn't matter if I'm successful now. I have all the promises of God in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if someone doesn't appreciate you now. You have the undying love of our Savior Jesus Christ. So the pride of race makes no sense. The pride of face and place make no sense. It has nothing to do with the gospel. The third thing, the pride of grace. The pride of grace. And this is really going to hit home for those of you that grew up in church more so than others. See this, or it could come from thinking that you live a righteous, religious, moral life. That you try to follow all the rules and that you've avoided certain sins in your life, that you've avoided certain mistakes that others have not avoided, and that gives you a sense of pride. Gives you a sense of pride that you've never been in prison. Gives you a sense of pride that you've never been pregnant before marriage. It gives you pride that you've never been fired from a job. It, you have the pride that you never killed anyone, you've only thought about it. And so you feel a, salt, a false sense of distinction over others that have gone through some certain things that you've not had to go through. And you feel good about yourself about it. Do you not understand the gospel? See, there are no good people. There is no bad people. Just like the song that we sang together, we're just a bunch of never get it rights. Could not be further from you. Could not be any truer, right? We're just a bunch of never get it rights. Doesn't matter how hard we try, we can never keep all those laws and rules. 
As David Crowder says, we're all crooked from head to toe with dirty hands and dirty souls. We're all hopeless without Christ who gives us hope. Without Christ, we are without hope. Just because you avoided some of those sins does not justify you. It doesn't justify me. See, in Romans 3, it tells us that all have fallen short of God's glory. All have fallen short. None of us, regardless of what you think you've done, are righteous. And say that destroys any false distinctions between us. The gospel is that we are justified by faith alone in Christ's finished work. It destroys all these types of pride. So in Christ, we had the freedom to unite. The second thing, we had the freedom to confront. We had the freedom to confront. Now, this was another hard one for me because I don't like confrontation. See, Paul confronting Peter in this situation was a gutsy move. It was a gutsy move. You know, if truth be known, if we were standing there or, or sitting there in this position, Peter might have said something about it. Like, hey, wait a minute. Who do you, who do you think you are? You should step back a minute, right? I'm sure he got just a little bit defensive. See, you had, the, you had Peter, who was the uh, Jesus-appointed head of the church at the time, and Paul, right? He was basically an upstart at the time, right? You had a somebody and really a nobody, Paul put a lot on the line right here in the situation, this confrontation between him and Peter, these brothers in Christ, these two guys that really respected and loved one another had an argument. They had a disagreement. It was not pleasant. It was a little awkward. Actually, it was a lot awkward. But Paul put it all on the line. But Paul could do it. Paul could confront because he was secure and his identity with Christ. And see, this is where we get a lot wrong a lot of times. We try to confront people, right? But we are not really free to confront because our identity in Christ is not where it should be. So that's why it blows up in our faces a lot of the times. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, Am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, some of us can't confront people because we're afraid of them liking you or not. Or we're afraid of them not approving of you. Some of us may have friends and family right now that need this awkward conversation, this awkward confrontation. They need to be confronted, but we are scared. We need to warn them, but we can't because we are held captive to their opinions. Because we don't want them to not like us any less. We don't want to feel that awkwardness. And again, it's another thing I struggled with coming up with ways to explain how we can do this in the church because sometimes this needs to happen. If anybody's up here on the stage and they say something that's not true with the gospel, they need to be confronted. But before you start hurling tomatoes at me, look at Matthew 18. It gives us some principles for confronting others. It talks about keeping it confidential, meaning one-on-one. If I have a problem with Michael, and Michael has a problem with me, we go face-to-face. We don't involve everyone else. We don't go to social media. We don't go to Facebook because, let's face it, we're all a lot braver behind a keyboard, right? It's easier to start a discussion on the old interwebs, right? 
It's easier to put someone down when they're not face-to-face with you. It's easier to confront someone when they're hundreds of miles away. But keep it confidential. It should be about you and the other person. The next one's keep the circle small. Don't include everybody. It doesn't matter if everyone knows. Right? Keep the circle small. When there's someone that needs confronting, keep the circle small. But keep it confidential if you can. Next one's be straightforward. Be straightforward. Tell them like it is. And you should expect them to tell you like it is if you're not showing the gospel. We're not arguing about chandeliers and pianos here. We're talking about the gospel. The next one is be forgiven, be forgiving and open. Be forgiving and open. See, it's going to be an awkward conversation. It's not going to be a pleasant conversation, but both need to come out understanding the gospel more. Both need to come out understanding love more. And if all those do not work, go tell Pastor Dennis. That's the go-to. But he's telling us, embrace your identity in Christ. Then other people's opinions will hold less weight on us. Because we're too self-absorbed with what other people think of us. So if we love the church and we love the gospel, when we confront others, their attitudes toward others are not in line with the gospel. We're in the wrong. We have to be in tune with the gospel before we confront others. But sometimes that needs to happen in the church. The third thing, in Christ, we have the freedom of security. The freedom of security. You're secure in Christ. Let's go back to verse 20. Again, this is one of the most read verses of the Bible, most memorized verses of the Bible. There's even a song written about it. Verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live this earthly body. I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My old self has been crucified. When Jesus was crucified, we were crucified with him. When he was rose back up with that resurrecting power, that power was given to us. It's a free gift to us. This is the essence of who we really are. This is who you truly are in Christ. We no longer live, but He lives in us. If you know Christ in your heart, if you accepted Him as your Savior, He lives in you. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the security that we have. This means not only do we have a new identity in Christ, we have a new power in Christ. He lives in us. It's not about what you have done. It's not about what I've done. It's what he's done on the cross. The gospel is Christ in you and you in Christ. See, that cross, that symbol, screams that you are loved, you are secure, you are guiltless. All you have to do is accept it. See, but salvation is not just Christ paying our debt and leaving us, all right, you got it now, you got this, go on. It's not that. It's part of it because he does pay our debt. But think about it this way. If I was poor and homeless and my family was starving and I was broke because I lost all my money gambling, 
right? And I'm an alcoholic with a terminal disease. Oh, and I'm also crippled and blind, right? So not, not a very good day. All these things are going wrong, right? Then some gracious rich guy comes along and pays my debt. And he tells me, now go take care of your family. Well, that's all great. And my balance is zero now. But it doesn't solve any of my problems. It doesn't solve all my problems. My balance may be zero. But I'm still a dying alcoholic that's still blind and crippled. I not only need my debt paid, but I need a new life. I need the security of a new life. See, the gospel is not just about you being in Christ where we get his righteousness. It's about him being in us where we have his power. See, when God sees us now, he mostly sees himself. He doesn't see you. He doesn't see the brokenness that we are. He sees his son. He sees someone clothed in his righteousness and filled with his power. Our eternity is secure because of the cross and what he did on it. So what Paul's telling us here, be united. Pride divides. Pride has no place in the church because it takes people further away from the gospel. And how can we show others the gospel when we're not living it ourselves? So stop basing your identity in you. I have to stop basing my identity in me and my, and my upbringing and my distinctiveness and my ethnicity and my, where I'm from, my southernness. That doesn't need to be important. That does not define who we are. Stop basing your identity in things and start basing your identity in Christ. That's what Paul's telling That's what Paul is telling Peter and the other Jews and Gentile Christians that that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus dying on the cross for us. And it's a free gift. That's the gospel. Anything else added to it is just a bunch of laws that can never save us. It's a bunch of laws that can never justify us. We can never justify ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work good enough for it. Never will we be good enough for it. So if my prayer team would come up at this time, in closing, I'd ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. So you may feel abandoned, but in Christ, you're loved by God. You may feel condemned, but in Christ, you're spotless and above reproach. You may feel down on your luck, but in Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. All the promises of God and Jesus are yours, and all things work together for good. You may feel neglected by others, but in Christ you have been chosen by God. He knows the plans He has for you. You may feel defeated by temptation, but in Christ you have died to sin's power. And Christ now lives through you. You may feel dead and lifeless, but in Christ you have resurrection life coursing through your veins. You may feel like you aren't making any difference in life, but in Christ you are raised with Jesus and seated in the heavenly places, and he has blessed you. You may feel broken, 
But in Christ, you've been made complete. In Christ, you're a new creation. In Christ, you're adopted in his family. In Christ, you are a partaker of the divine nature. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God. In Christ, we have freedom. That's who you are. Quit acting like someone else. If you're free, prove it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this message and what it means to us. Lord, just give us the power and the strength to go out there and live a life that shows the gospel. Not ourselves being seen, not but what we've done or what we haven't done, that what you've done in us, that's what people should see. Lord, let us live out the gospel. Because it's not about what we've done, it's about what you've done. So we have racial tendencies and we have pride in our lives, Lord. I just pray that you start chipping those things away from our lives, Lord. Because all those things, they just get in the way of the gospel. They get in the way of showing others who you are. I ask forgiveness for all those times that we let these things get in the way. That we shouldn't. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here today that does not know your healing power, that does not know the freedom that they have in you. Lord, today I pray that today is the day they walk out of here with you as their Savior. Lord, just thank you. I lift up everyone's heart in this congregation. Lord, you know what we go through. Lord, I just lift everyone up to you. Lord, just thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us. Lord, you know we're just a bunch of not get it rights. But you love us anyway. You give us your grace anyway. And we have that freedom in you. And as in that, we love and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.